Good afternoon. This is Brandon from the Value Hive podcast. We're recording episode 21, and I'm really excited to have today's guest on. It's really a perfect time for the market environment with all this volatility and what we're seeing in the private private business sector. And uh, today's guest is Jeff Sands. For those of you that don't know Jeff, he is the founding partner of Dorset Partners, which is a turnaround um, investment um, consulting firm, and they basically revitalize troubled businesses. Jeff is a three-time winner of the turnaround of the year, uh, which is why I'm so excited to have him on. And he also literally wrote the book on how to turn around a business. Um, he is the author of Corporate Turnaround Artistry, How to Fix a Business in 100 Days. And so the point of having Jeff on is to talk about what he's seen on the ground, um, some of his war stories on turnaround businesses, and the good and the bad, uh, what to do, you know, what not to do, basically just picking his brain on all of his years of experience and fleshing out the ideas that he's talked about in the book. And we're going to see if we can develop our own tool set or at least a, or, or, or at least a primer to go into the public or private markets and see if we can understand businesses that can be turned around in 100 days. Um, so, Jeff, without further ado, thanks so much for coming on the show. Brandon, thanks for having me, and um, I've become a big fan of your podcast over the last several weeks after I found it, and um, it's, a, it's a great resource, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you, thank you. The pot, you know, the podcast is as good as the guests, and so, um, you know, having having you on here is just just only going to help increase the value of this show. But before before we kind of get into your personal background, I was I was doing some research on you. And I was scrolling through LinkedIn, and I saw that you are, or or you were at one time a professor, maybe an adjunct professor at Syracuse University. Is that correct? Um, that would be overstating it a little bit. I um, did a turnaround, and our bank, the private lender, um, was also a professor at Syracuse. And he, after the turnaround was done, uh, he ended up making it a case study. He... He teaches one of the only MBA level or college level turnaround courses in the country, uh, built it around my case study. So I've done multiple lectures on that and then also have um, gone and, 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 and done some teaching, uh, uh, you know, done some teaching for his class as a whole, you know, sort of outside of the case study. So um, I've dabbled, but um, I'm certainly not a uh, professor adjuncted by any stretch. Yeah, the only reason I asked that is because I spent two and a half years up in up in Syracuse, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't in the business school, but uh, it's a it's a it's a cool place for 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 people that want to get to know upstate New York. So I just I just found that interesting. Um, take us take, it is. take take us through your personal background. You know, where did you know how did you get started? Um, you know, personality wise, like were you always led to these turnaround situations? And just kind of take us through your baptism into business. So um, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My grandmother uh, was an entrepreneur and my parents, uh, both entrepreneurs. So, you know, it always seemed to me and, and especially, you know, back, you know, ro roll the clock back 30 odd, 40 years. And um, there weren't many entrepreneurs, but to me, it seemed a whole lot more sense than going to work at Procter and Gamble and um, just being sort of buried in an institution um, so that was always attractive, <clears throat> you know, like most people I followed, um, sort of, you know, the popular media of business, uh, which is largely big institutions and, uh, the startup culture, which, um, you know, people find very attractive and, and I did as well. And 
I never ever once considered that turnarounds would be a thing. And I certainly didn't think they'd happen to me. Although, you know, my, my father certainly had enough turnaround stories in his entrepreneurial past. Um, Went to college, uh, grew up uh, in a little town, Mandeville, Louisiana, outside New Orleans. Wanted to be a million miles away from uh, there when I went to college. Um, My joke is if I had any sense, I would have gone to California or someplace really nice. My parents had both gone to Syracuse and they said central New York's a great place um, that's far away. And I ended up going to Hobart College there, um, graduated, worked outside of the business, um, you know, just um, spent my 20s working for other companies, everything from startup to Fortune 300, got a wide variety of experience, went back to the family business around the age of 30, which was manufacturing, um, and had a, you know, everything was fine, had nice growth, felt like a superhero, then our outside events really hit the business radically shifted our uh, our revenues down and all of a sudden I was in my first turnaround ever and um, up to that moment I thought I was a pretty smart guy and knew quite a bit and I realized that um, you know I had an economics degree and an MBA and I never learned a thing about turnarounds or fixing a business or running a business on cash or, or cash flow forecasting none of this um, and that was my uh, that was my rude introduction to the world of turnarounds. And eventually, um, after uh, probably about 24 hours of self pity, I uh, committed myself to figuring out this game as best I could. And um, basically, I've been doing that ever since. So, what was it about that first turnaround story uh, within? I guess I guess this was the family business where you got hit with this with these with these outside events. What what were those events specifically, and why do you think you were you weren't prepared for things like that, even coming out of business school? The um, yeah, so we what we did is we printed um, designs on polyester and turned them into products. And um, if you think of a decorative flag in front of your home, that became one of our biggest products. Okay. Uh, like a pumpkin flag in front of your, your house, uh, you know, at Thanksgiving. And um, 9-11 hit, everybody bought American flags and, and nobody took them down. And all the women who were flying, you know, rotating out their decorative flags of the season stopped. Um, and we, it, first we sold a gazillion American flags. We ran out of, the whole country ran out of flagpoles. We were buying broom wow. handles and converting them into flagpoles. And we thought, hmm. kind of like, you know, pipes and tobacco, if there's twice as many flagpoles out there, we're going to sell twice as many flags. So we yeah. didn't, so, you know, we were in advanced mode instead of retreat mode. And then all of a sudden, um, everybody had an American flag and uh, that was it. And we didn't sell hardly any afterwards um and you know why didn't i know it because they don't teach it because no one ever thinks about it um you know you look at 0809 lots of people went through turnarounds and i think they largely try to erase it from their memory uh it was a bad event that you know will never happen again and um and and you know two months ago no one cared about the topic of turnaround no one wanted to talk about it but um now you got a global pandemic and um you know, we we're, we've lost like uh, three times more jobs in four weeks than uh, we did in two years at the global financial recession, and um, suddenly uh, everybody's paying attention to turnarounds again. But it's not 
it's not taught, uh, you know, other than the course at SU and there's a couple others around the country, it's not taught. And uh, folks don't talk about it B- because, you know, who wants to? It's like talking about illness when everybody wants to yeah. talk about health and skipping through fields of daisies and, you know, being Steve Jobs. That's way more interesting. Right, right. And it also it also feeds kind of the uh, the 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 optimistic bent that 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 a lot of people have going into business because one you know one way that I think about it is business owners you know the reason that they get to that spot or you know even even studies show like a lot of these CEOs are very charismatic very optimistic people and nobody really wants to take the time to focus on the downside the more stoic effect of you know hey what happens if you know if crap hits the fan and we have to lay off a bunch of staff we have to you know burn through cash just just to survive it goes against this optimistic nature that is intrinsic in this entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, that's entirely true. And I, you know, I, I think back to like Iwo Jima and if the sergeant said, okay, uh, only one out of three of you is going to make it out of here alive. Um, I think every person would look to their left and look to their right and say, you poor bastards, I'm going to miss you. Um, and the guy next to them would be doing the same thing. And the guy next to them would, everybody thinks they're going to be, the survivor. And that's why publishers would rather put out the 40th book about how, you know, you can be like Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. not produce a title on, on turnarounds because it's just, it's not popular fodder. I went, so after the bank came in and, um, you know, it really put the squeeze on us in a shocking way. Um, I went to uh, Barnes and Noble and there's four racks of management books and not a single title on fixing a business insolvency, running a business on cash, getting out of big trouble, hmm. nothing, just all this happy, happy rah-rah stuff. Um, you know, which I, I get it. That's what builds. You need lots of entrepreneurs throwing their, uh, throwing themselves uh, forward to create a dynamic economy. So, you know, we've got to cheer those folks on, but the, the kind of going back to your point, the, um, that entrepreneurial stubbornness is what gets people through. And, you know, I meet lots of business owners who for 30 years, their grit and determination has knocked down walls and worn them out. And, um, and so that's what they're going to do in the turnaround. They're just going to grit their teeth and grind through this. But that becomes a fatal flaw because hmm. uh, the bank doesn't want you gritting your teeth and grinding through it. The bank wants you changing your behavior in a radical way. And, at some point, if you don't, it's not just the bank. It's then it's your customers are looking at you saying, yeah, you know, Brandon's God bless him, but he's stubborn, but he's not doing the right thing. And then your suppliers start saying the same thing. Then your employees start saying the same thing. And at some point, the entire world needs knows that you need to change except you. I and mean, it's not your fault because you're doing what's worked for you for 30 years. It's just the game changed and mm. you, you know, as an entrepreneur, you don't realize it. Yeah. Now what, what, what are some of the ways that business owners um, or, 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 or you've seen business owners kind of grind through it? Like, what does that look like from a negative perspective? Is it just, you know, don't change anything, just act like it doesn't exist kind of like an apathetic approach or is it, you know what, we're just going to get through it because I'm determined enough and you don't change anything about the operations. You don't cut costs. Like what is, what are, what are the negative sides of just grinding through it? There's, um, well, all the ones you mentioned are true. Um, and we have lots of jokes in the turnaround business. I don't think any of them are necessarily very funny, but, um, 
<laughs> one is you don't want to be Cleopatra because she was the queen of denial. Um, <laughs> yeah, or, or, you know, the river of denial runs deep. Um, so a lot of it's just denial. And um, if you take a startup founder, um, they generally, and, and listen, I was a startup founder once, so I get this and I refuse to cut back. Yeah. Um, They're just so forward focused and and they have such a clear vision in their head of how things are going to work out that all the um, all the reality signals coming from the world just aren't enough to knock them off track. Because they're like, I know where this is going. Forget about everything else. We're going, you know, it's such a clear picture in my head. That's where the movie has to end. And that's where we're going to go. Others are I've seen. um very, very smart. This usually happens with like the engineer turned entrepreneur who's brilliant and knows he's brilliant or she. Um, and then the bank starts uh, questioning things and, and, and bringing up what's happening financially. And they just, you know, literally like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not that smart. You're a banker. You're not a genius like me. Yeah. You don't have patents. And, and they And they think the whole world doesn't understand their brilliance or appreciate their brilliance. And they take it personally. Hmm. And then you take, um, you know, take like an old school industry like trucking or something. Um, you, you know, it's just that gritty determination every single day. You make the trucks run on time. You make people who don't want to, you know, work hard or work one way or the other. You make them work the way they need to work. You make everything happen just through pure grit and determination and, you know, if you got to get in a truck and uh, and deliver something out to Syracuse, you'll do it. But um, that's just uh, you know it just it, it that doesn't work when when you're running out of cash um, hmm. and you have to just you you really have to reverse the engines. You have to reverse your thinking, and you have to get on you know more like a uh, you know wartime footing. And everything changes, but you it's very hard to realize it as the entrepreneur how fast things change. Right. When did when did you realize that a there this this idea of 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 corporate turnarounds and actually the corporate turnaround <clears throat> education when when did you realize that a that didn't exist and b you knew you wanted to fill that void? Um I I knew it didn't exist when I said well hold on it must have figured, I must have learned this somewhere in my MBA. Um <laughs> Or, you know, in all the books I've read or all the magazine articles. Um, and, and then that trip to Barnes & Noble, I realized it just wasn't out there. Um, and, and, and there are resources. You know, I've read um, roughly 25 books on turnarounds, another 25 on buying distressed businesses. But, you know, they're mostly like old out-of-print stuff that you can find used on Amazon. Uh, they're, they're clearly not popular fare. Um and as I've read all those, there were a couple holes in there. Um, deep cash flow tactics were, were not covered as deeply as I thought they needed to be. The psychology, um, which I think is the biggest influence in uh, turnaround success, was not covered well. And it's really hard to cover well. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I tried my best. I told a lot of parables. I don't know if I covered it well, but I, at least I tried to draw attention to it. And then debt restructuring. Um, in those 50 books, I think one covered it pretty well. Uh, and I never intended to write a book. I was um, flying to northern Canada in the middle of winter to start a new turnaround. And um, 
realized, boy, you know, if I just had like a 10 page paper, I could hand out to everybody to kind of walk them through the A to Z because everybody, I know what's going on, but everybody else is such a mystery and they don't really, they, they don't see a clear path. And, um, right. and you know, if I had 10 page little recipe book, I could hand out to everybody, that'd be really helpful. So I did that. And then, um, and then, quite frankly, it spiraled out of control and ended up being a 336-page book. Wow, <laughs> which, which I think covers it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 awesome. And actually, before before we kind of dive into to to really the meat of this discussion, you mentioned in a a post um, on your on your website, Dorset Partners, and you kind of outline you know why why we wrote the book. And one of the one of the reasons you wrote the book is you say you know there's CEOs and many CEOs don't realize how uneducated they are about this concept of turnarounds. And you know this mm-hmm. this this obviously implies that there's just some broad sweeping you know blind spots that management has. And you know we've we've alluded to some of them earlier, such as you know whether it's ego, whether it's um, stubbornness. But specifically talking about the operations. So when it comes to, you know, let's just say it's not even you, but like when it when it comes to a manager that sits down and says, you know what, we need to turn this business around. From an operational standpoint, where are the blind spots for those that are uneducated? Um, well, let me answer that, but step back. So if you look at, um, you know, what we know about management, the study of management it started with the railroads in like the 18, late 1800s, then it went to the big factories, and then it, um, and then it largely stayed in the big corporations. Um, yeah, I bet you if you go back in the 70s, very little, almost no books were written about um, anything other than big corporations, and that's what was studied in the schools you know, maybe in the last 30, 40 years, startup culture has really taken off. Certainly, you know, what we what the U.S. has done in tech and Silicon Valley has helped. Now there's lots of stuff written on startups. But I think your average middle market company, uh, you know, just some manufacturer banging out widgets in Indiana, there's not there's nothing really written specifically for them. So they sort of. Um, you know, they go to business school and business school teaches them about big corporations in Silicon Valley. And they, they're somewhere in the middle of that and they take the best lessons they can and go forward. Um, so there is, and I'm, I'm working the middle market. Yeah. You know, I used to probably most of my turnarounds have been 5 million to 300 million. Um, okay. these days I try to stay above 30 to 50 million in revenues. Um, but, um, there's not really much written for them. And then another, the the simplest thing is that all accounting is accrual accounting. And in the turnaround, you have to run the business on cash. And um, I mean, multiple times I've been with really, really, really smart CFOs and really smart controllers who know a ton and a lot more about accounting than I do. And Mm -hmm. it like takes me a whole day to get their head reoriented to uh, cash accounting instead of accrual. Because they have, they've got a CPA and they've got 20, 30 years of experience in, in, you know, basically one language. And now I'm trying to, you know, move them from Spanish to Italian. And it's a, uh, right. it's tough for their brain to make that trans- translation jump. So what's the main difference? And, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up this, this cash versus accrual, because I do want to dive into the weeds a little bit. What are, what are the main differences between accrual based accounting and cash basis accounting? And why is, why, why are those differences so important during a turnaround period? Um, I'll tell you the other 
thing in addition to that is <clears throat> when I say uh, cash based or you know cash flow forecasting, even you know really smart people scratch their head and go, oh, the um, statement of cash uh, statement of cash flows that's in our um, you know our annual review or audit package, which no one really produces on a monthly basis. But that's not even it. And, you know, back to business schools, they teach P&L and balance sheet, and then they'll cover statement of cash flow as quickly, but that's all historical looking. Hmm. So the cash flow forecast is, is forward looking, literally a forecast. Right. Uh, difference is, so, you know, <clears throat> cash is your oxygen or, or your blood. You can't, the, once the business runs out of cash and you can't make payroll, it's game over. Yep. Um, everything locks up and it's it's game over. So, you know, if I've got if I've got a payroll of 100,000 due on Friday and I've got a million bucks in old inventory sitting on my balance sheet and I've got zero cash, um, I'll take that million and I can sell the the million dollars in inventory for 100 grand. I'll sell the million. I'll sell it. Take the 100 grand, make payroll, survive another day, get into next week. Yeah. But I also just took a $900,000 loss on the inventory. Right, um, right. Which, you know, is going to upset the bank and everybody else. But I, I don't, I'll tell you the first several months of a turnaround, I really don't look at the P&L. Um, I don't pay attention to it. For me, it's all cash and it's all survival. And, um, and I, you know, if I, we got to take the 900,000 P&L hit to make payroll, we'll do it and we'll do it all day long. And, um, our first year at my own business, if I remember right, it was something like a, um, you know, at that point, revenues were maybe, I don't know, you know, 10 to 15 million. And we lost, I think, two and a half million. Okay. But we generated cash flow throughout it. Okay. And, and we're okay. alive. And um, it, that that's what really struck me. Like, holy cow, we just had a really successful year. We're much further ahead than we were. We've made great progress. But if you look at the P&L, you would never know it. And anybody mm. looking in would say this is a disaster. But um we're running on on survival means. Well, that's 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 so interesting because one of the things that I that I that I really stress, at least when it comes to, because you know you're you're doing this all in private markets. I assume. Do you do you do you, do you work with any public companies or is it just private companies? No, all private. Okay, yeah. So in in the public markets, it's kind of the same way. But when I'm looking for investment ideas, one of the biggest you know, crutches is people use the stock screeners where they screen for, you know, positive net income margins or, 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 or positive earnings per share. But the problem with that is exactly what you alluded to, where if you're just focusing on the P&L, you could miss a really great year because net income showed a loss. But then if you look at the free cash flow, you realize, wow, this business just had a really great year. And it's just, it's just, it's just so interesting the difference between focusing on the cash versus focusing on the, you know, P and L income statement. Yeah, and 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 folks from big companies who never ever had to worry about cash ever just have never thought of it and and have a really hard time thinking about it. And that's where I see a lot of CFOs, uh, controllers that come from bigger companies is just such a completely foreign concept because they've never had to scramble for cash. There was always a big fat balance sheet somewhere for them. So then, so then would you say the main difference between the cash versus accrual is that emphasis or the, or the, or the de-emphasizing of the, of the income statement versus the emphasis on the cash flow statement then? Yeah, that's it. So we, um, 
you know, I, I fix businesses, but I also invest. And the businesses we invest in, we usually put. So, you know, it, business school will teach you um, go in, run the business on your P and L, and get a um, <clears throat> get get a uh, cash, you know, borrow on your cash flows, and stay away from asset based loans because those are it's kind of ghetto lending. And that's what I thought. We generally run our businesses on on asset based loans. And for an ABL, you need to do a uh, what's called a borrowing-based certificate or a BBC, usually monthly, where you basically show here's the value of our receivables and the amount we're borrowing against that collateral. Here's the value of our inventory and the amount we're borrowing against those receivables or that that collateral. And you know, therefore, here's ultimately here's our uh, our borrowing availability, here's our cash balance, and here's the total headroom. We and the banks generally want to see those monthly. We run our companies on uh, daily BBC. So every day we get a report that says, here's the cash balance and here's the total available headroom. Hmm. And, um, you know, when you see that, it's, it is the true sort of diagnostic blood pressure test of a business every single day. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we look at lots of other metrics, but that's one we look at every day. We never lose sight of it. And, um, and, and you know, uh, I don't know, during a healthy economy, 90% of the companies never do a borrowing-based certificate because they're too healthy to, to need, you know, to work on an ABL. And then, um, mm-hmm. And then when they do, they're only doing exactly what the bank uh, requests of them, not anymore. And I, I think it's just a fabulous discipline to look at that every day and just always have a cash mindset because um, it's, it's hard for anything to sneak up on you if you've got a cash mindset. Right. And a lot of people have been snuck up on since late February because they haven't looked at companies through a cash mindset. And one of the one of the things is, you know, you said it you said it earlier, during the early stages of a turnaround, you don't even look at the P and L. You focus on the cash. And when I hear that, I think, you know, you focus on the balance sheet. And so I kinda wanna dive in a little bit to how you analyze a balance sheet of a company during turnaround. Like what are what are what are some signs that you're looking for? Like what are some <clears throat> green flags and then what are some red flags where as you're going through a company's balance sheet, you're like, we have to fix this first. And and I think mo- well, using me as an example, I didn't understand the balance sheet nearly as well as I should have. I understood the P and L well, um, but the balance sheet was always a little mystical to me. My guess is that's pretty normal, and that's what I've seen in businesses that I go into. Uh, most entrepreneurs have a good handle on the P and L, not the balance sheet. The other is, um, you know, so think of your average business. Um, you know, think of a hotel that's closed right now. They had a nice looking P&L. Uh, March was ugly. April is going to be ugly. What's that really mean? I don't know. You know, if you look over 12 months and there's two bad months and 10 good months, are you looking at the average? The bank um, covenants are usually a debt service coverage ratio, and mm-hmm. that's a trailing 12 months. So even though you're a hotel in Europe, like you're in a cash crisis or you've got a cash crisis coming at you real fast. Your, all your basic metrics don't show you that, and even the bank's metrics don't show you that, which is largely why banks are uh, giving everybody a free pass at the moment. Hmm. So um, balance sheet, I go in and, um, you know, well, first thing I do in a turnaround is I do a 13-week cash flow, which is what the bank and everybody wants. That is the, that's the standard that, uh, that you run the business on and everybody wants. And the second thing I do is a liquidation analysis 
because your bank's already done a liquidation analysis on you and they're looking at it. And, um, and I want to see what that looks like. Cause I want to know how the bank's seeing it. And, and right. I also want to be able to coach the bank one direction or the other, depending on what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so we can compare our liquidation analysis and I can say, Oh no, I think you're wrong here and here. Um, and then it's, you know, what, where can you pull cash? Um, Inventory, receivables, um, machinery, and equipment. Those are your um, those are your three biggies for uh, pulling cash out. And then what what are your drains and 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 who can who can kill you? Um, <clears throat> you know your vendor who sells you boxes every month can't put you out of business, but your bank can. Uh, the tax yep. man can. Yep. Um, you know, so it's really, uh, you know, looking at the biggest risk factors and seeing where I can get the most possible leverage out of the assets that we have to accelerate cash generation. The other key is you, it's all about having a really, really good plan because generating cash to do the same old dumb stuff doesn't make any sense. And even if it wasn't dumb two months ago, it probably is right now because the world's changed. Right. So it's having a phenomenal plan that makes sense, it'll get you out of this and then feeding it with the cash. Now, and that is depleting your balance sheet at the same time, but it's sort of a, uh, a race. Can I get to my solution faster than my balance sheet will deplete itself or that, or faster than all my problems um, are moving? And it's turnarounds are really about speed and precision. Precision means doing the right thing. And speed is moving faster than all your problems. And if you can do those two things and get support from your stakeholders, it, it generally works. Hmm. I love that. I love that. And I, and, wanna... and I probably said a lot there, so feel free to break down any of it. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, I am. I am. I'm going I'm, to I've, I've, I've got all these notes I'm, 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 I'm going through. Um, I want to circle back where you, where, you, where you use the phrase coach coach the bank and i found that interesting um because from an outside perspective looking in i would assume that for some small business owners it can be a little intimidating to you know think that you know hey i'm gonna go in and i'm actually gonna coach the bank because one of the stigmas is you know you've got this investment banker you've got this banker you know maybe he has his mba you know you think he's just super smart and you don't necessarily come from this financial background so the idea of coaching a banker um, sounds intimidating. What do you what do you mean by that? And actually, what does that what does that look like in practice? It's um, it, it's largely playing poker with the world's worst hand. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of it's bluffing and persuasion and getting them to see things the way you want to see them. Right. Um, if you know, right now the world's in trouble and banks are giving everybody a uh, free pass, but at some point they're you know, sort of um, that's going to stop and they're going to have to start administering, you know, kind of old school uh, debt collection justice. If they look at you and they say, eh, you know, uh, based on Brandon's assets and the liquidation value, we think we can just pull the plug on him, liquidate everything and get our money back. And if you're, that makes you a, a ripe cherry. And um, there were a lot of companies that just got wiped out in 08 and 09, where the bank, you know, somebody in the board of the bank, the chairman says, we need another billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet, go get it. So everybody scatters off and the commercial lenders um, and every bank ranks you know, in the commercial lending department, they rank every single customer, every single credit, every single month. 
and they rank them and they and they and they classify them and they share those rankings with the federal regulators, which they have to. They also share it with their shareholders. Mm-hmm. So this is like really serious stuff. And you're not hiding. You're on a list somewhere. And when they say go get X amount of money, they look at it and say, okay, we're going to liquidate the bottom, you know, a hundred or one thousand loans on yeah. our books. And um, so they're doing that calculus now. If they say, oh, we can go foreclose on Brandon and get it really quickly. I have to convince them that that's a lousy idea. Um, and I might say, well, my liquidation analysis says you're not going to get all your money back. In fact, you're going to have a shortfall. So you really ought to go pick on somebody else. Hmm. Um, or, you know, I might also say, you know, if it's borderline and I'm not so worried about that, I might say, you know, they're getting nervous. Like, uh, you know, Brandon's getting close where we might not be able to uh, collect all of our money in a foreclosure, I can say, I don't know the way I did it. Uh, I think you have a real cushion there and you shouldn't panic and you should treat Brandon a little nicer and, and give us some more breathing room and let us get through this because you're, you're, you're safe. Hmm. Um, and that, that's really what I mean about trying to coach them up and down. And, you know, a lot of that is <clears throat> what are auction values these days? A lot of it is, um, are, you know, is the entrepreneur self-destructive? Um, you know, if, if the entrepreneur, uh, goes running out of the building and doesn't help, it's really hard to collect those receivables because people are happy to pay an entrepreneur. They don't like paying the big mean bank. Um, same with inventory If all the inventory or machinery gets damaged, um, that, that swings. So, um, and every bank's had some maniac who, uh, has destroyed value and they're always, they're always worried about that next maniac which usually works against everybody because the bank kind of looks at everyone with a jaundiced eye, but Mm -hmm. you, as you're playing poker with a really crummy hand, you can use that to, um, to help slow them down a bit and help them work with you and, and feel better about the, you know, the process. So after a while, I assume that you, you know, you were, you were, you were thinking to yourself, you know, I'm actually not that bad at this, at this whole coaching the bank thing. You've gone in, you know, with your family business, you've helped that turn around. Um, you know, you're gaining, you're gaining confidence at what, at what period of time do you go out and start door set partners to really, really start to take, you know, advantage of this skill of turning around troubled companies? So after my first turnaround, I was probably like everybody else who's ever had one. I just wanted to forget forget it ever happened, (laughs) wipe it from my memory. I use the the analogy. It's like, you know, if you you walk into a bad neighborhood and got mugged, most people would say, okay, note to self, I'm never going near a bad neighborhood again as long (laughs) as I possibly live. Right. Um, But it, so, so. then I went through a second turnaround, which was much more traumatic. And I realized that, you know, I think the world's full of bad neighborhoods. And maybe instead of trying to live my entire career avoiding bad neighborhoods, maybe I should develop some street fighting skills and um, and, and be ready when I do happen to wander in, into mm. one. And, you know, a, a bigger analogy is every apparently every so often there's an enormous uh, global financial meltdown. Um, that, you know, no matter how good you are staying away from bad neighborhoods, sometimes like the whole world becomes one and, and you need street fighting skills. So we, um, my joke is it took three years to pull off a six month turnaround at our, um, our family business because I had no earthly idea what the hell I was doing. And, um, I remember it was, I don't know, like two years before I found a turnaround management association, went to their website, 
found out there were five steps in a turnaround, which I never knew and realized that we were on step four. Um, <laughs> so, you know, three years, That's three years later, everything was fantastic. Um, I went on vacation. <clears throat> the world couldn't have been better. Um, and then hurricane, and we were in New Orleans, hurricane Katrina rolled in, mm. uh, flooded my house, wiped out my neighborhood, damaged Jeez. the factory, scattered the employees. It was literally four months before our bank reopened. Our bank was underwater all that time. And wow. you know, Katrina happened end of August and we got a call around Christmas time. Uh, Hey, <laughs> how are you guys doing? We're back open. Wow. And, and by the way, where have the deposits been going? So that one, um, and, and that, that, that killed me, killed us. We, um, you know, I spent a year rebuilding the house, rebuilding the business, getting everything up, but I, it, it was just too much. Um, I made the mistake of talking to a bankruptcy attorney and most bankruptcy attorneys are one trick ponies. They said, Oh, the only solution to every problem is file bankruptcy. And, uh, and my brains were scrambled after uh, Katrina. And we lived in a little camper in the driveway for um, like nine months. And uh, wow. this guy said, filing bankruptcy is a solution to everything. And um, so I did. And then um, that's a lousy experience. And on the back end of that, I realized that um, there, pr- there probably had to be a bunch of other options. And I never seemed to know what the hell was going on. But the bank and their attorneys did. And my commercial attorney didn't understand insolvency. I talked to a bankruptcy attorney who only knew one thing and mm-hmm. like, you know, I bet I could, and I'm just a, I'm a bad loser. So I just dwelled and fixated on uh, how, what I might've done differently and then became completely obsessed and read everything I could find on insolvency and just kept relitigating the battle in my head. And I um, uh, found a, a mentor in turnarounds <clears throat> who said, Jeff, you just got to go hang a shingle and help other businesses. And uh, eventually my dad did as well. And I said, eventually I mustered up the courage, hung a shingle and became a, uh, you know, a um, insolvency fighter for, for other companies. And that was like, Oh, eight ish, which also seemed like good timing. Um, yeah, you're, you are, you are, you are since. great with this timing. I mean, it was, it was, it was actually, <laughs> it was, it was, it was funny before, before we hit record, we were talking about the, the uh the uh, release of your book and how 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 you were saying you know no one really wanted to talk about turnarounds and then you release the book basically at the market peak before everything collapsed and it's just you know the timing I just I gotta I gotta start buying lotto tickets when you buy lotto tickets that's all I'm trying to say <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah man. I think the published date was like February 18th. Um, so the next time you write a book, <laughs> let me know so I can hedge my portfolio accordingly. Yeah, actually, <laughs> we'll work on that together because <laughs> I'm not taking advantage of my own good timing yet either. <laughs> so let's 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 kind of talk about. So you said you started this kind of in 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 0809. Where did where did you find this mentor? Because I think one of the things that's important about you know, a lot of, a lot of the success stories from people that have made it is, you know, they've got these mentors that, you know, help them along in the process. And, and what in particular, what lessons did you learn from this mentor? You know, basically that gave you the encouragement and, and the motivation to say, you know what? Yeah, I can, I can do this. I can go out on my own and this is what I want to do. Um, he, um, Van Lanier is a guy who's probably done turnarounds for 40 years, uh, ran a big national practice for one of the large consulting firms, and then had kind of retired back to his own um, <clears throat> accountancy. My friend's 
business was in trouble. His wife met Van at a Chamber of Commerce event. My friend wouldn't listen, um, and she gave me his uh, Van's card, and I called him. And he he happened to write a lot online at the time, and I just read everything and became kind of an annoying fanboy who wouldn't leave him alone. Um, but, you know, he kept saying, go read this book, go read that book, and uh, was a little bit Mr. Miyashi uh, sending me on errands. Mm-hmm. And um, and that, that you know, that, that helped. That really sort of solidified it and um, and took away a lot of the mystery and mystique behind it because, you know, because there's not much written, because people don't touch it, it's incredibly mysterious. And, you know, as we talked about earlier with, like, liquidating inventory to make payroll, it's so counterintuitive that um, we we almost all have sort of a, a you know, a learning block um, around it. Like the, the, the concepts don't sink in because they're so counterintuitive to us. Right. Um, but that was it. And then Van, you know, Van gave me uh, at some point, he's like, you know, you got to stop calling me and go do it for somebody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, you know, and, and in 08, that looked like one of the only uh, growth industries for a while. Mm, right, that and morticians and funeral homes. I bet. Let's let's uh let's let's now kind of pivot into, you know, this. We've talked a lot about the theory and kind of your 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 thoughts on the theory of these turnarounds. But you know, like I said in the in the introduction, you are a three time turnaround of the year winner. I think it was in sixteen or sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Is that is that correct? Uh, seven, 17, 17, 18, 19, and. Uh... I gotta tell you, I think we got a great chance at twenty. Wow, we're about to have a four, Pete. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, see. <laughs> well, so you know, clearly you are, you know, if not the best in the field, one of the best. Take us through those turnarounds, and you can start with the you can start with the twenty seventeen, or you can start even you know with 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 one of the more recent <clears throat> ones, whichever whichever is more fresh in your mind. Take us through those turnarounds, kind of from the beginning to the end, and 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 if you can, you we. We discussed this idea of kind of this race car analogy, and so if you can embed that into mm-hmm. into these stories on how you turned around these businesses. Okay, and let me um, j- just so we don't over glorify it, um, the Turnaround of the Year Award is awarded by the Turnaround Management Association. It is the Olympic gold medal. It's something I always aspire to, but there are categories. So there's not just one. Uh, there's a small business, a midsize, a large, a mega, and then an international. So um, I've got two small, one big, no, sorry, two small, one mid, and then uh, perhaps international this year. Um, but yeah, if you want, I'll just go kind of in order. And, yeah. Um, yeah, let's do it. First one, you know, and, and, you know, a, a good story always helps. So the first one, uh, I got a call from a bank who said, and they had turned me on to this business, uh, like a couple of days before saying, okay, we're putting a squeeze on, on this borrower. And, um, uh, are you available if we need you? And then they called and uh, said the CEO just killed himself this morning, and um, we need somebody to get in there. Wow. Um, yeah. So the business had fallen from 45 million to 10 million revenues, and then the largest customer. So out of 10, they were four of that. They pulled their four. So now we're at six. Um, FBI was ready to prosecute three different uh, felonies. It was the whole place had gone to hell. The owner did an ESOP, basically defrauded the ESOP, was spending all his money goofing off and not showing up at work. The employees, um, 
it, the stories are stunning. Um, they were drinking and smoking so much on the job. Literally, guys couldn't find their, their car after after their shift. Guys would pass out drunk at their machines. We had one Yahoo in a um, warehouse that had about 20 hours of legitimate work. He stretched that into 70 hours a week, so he's getting 30 hours of overtime. Wow. He's so bored with all the sitting around that he picks up a drinking habit. He crashed the forklift drunk. No one fired him, and he kept billing his 70 hours a week. So that's the kind of just culture wow. that it developed. Um, so, uh, you know, the good news is that a shock gets everybody's attention. The suicide was clearly a shock. He also had three, four family members in the business. Um, but, but I looked at it and I said, you know, this is a good business. We have great, well, we had great customers, um, but we've got all the, the, the fundamentals here. I kind of, you know, kind of like an architect can go into an old building and say, you know, you like the bones of the building. I like the bones mm. of the business. And, I like um, that. And I, and I told everybody, you know, listen, y'all have clearly been screwing around for a long time. Um, get back to work, work your asses off, and um, I'll go figure out how to get payroll funded this week, and then we'll figure out where to go from here. And, um, you know, basically got that going and then went to the biggest customer and said, uh, <clears throat> and, and they were the whole, I could have never pulled it off without them. And I said, you yeah, know, here's the deal. Y'all were upset. You have every reason to be. You were uh horribly mistreated but this wonderful company is going to go down the tubes they've served you well for 30 years um the 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 people who cause you the problems are gone and um it's really up to you do you want to keep a a, a good supplier with a great record for 30 years and some recent screw-ups or do you and and you know what or do you want to just let the business fail and um it probably doesn't mean anything to you, but it'll clearly have a big impact on this little town. It'll have hmm. an impact on a hundred or so families. And um, I really want you all to step up and be part of the solution here. And to their credit, they did. They, um, you know, I don't know, within a day or two, they started giving us new orders and they just kept increasing it. We had to perform, but we kept performing. They kept increasing the orders. And that's really how we climbed out of it. That and you know, stopping all the all the BS with overtime and the shenanigans, mm -hmm. and, um, and and you know, stop that stop that stuff abruptly. Stop the party. Um, <laughs> took away the punch bowl. Yeah. But, you know, those two combined, and then um, ran a uh, sale process. Had offers about three months in, and right around that time, we were turning cash positive, and. Um, the business has done uh, incredibly. We found a proper owner who who then really put the investment into the company, fixed the equipment, uh, gave the customers more confidence, and uh, you know pay, painted the path forward. And that's been fantastic. Um, second one was a um, <clears throat> paper mill in very remote northern Canada um, that had announced their closure. They tried to sell for two years, couldn't find a buyer. Then announced the closure in August. So, you know, once they announced the closure in August, the customers left. They ran down the inventories, the um, the whole um, woodlands, all the contractors sold off their equipment because they were basically out of work because they wouldn't be um, uh, harvesting anymore. Mm -hmm. And everything had really run down. And three weeks before uh, the new perimeter fence was being built to secure the empty building and um Three weeks before the official closure, um, a really gutsy investor stepped up and bought it uh, and called me and um, 
I hopped on a plane the next day and uh, flew up there. And um, that was uh, really just kind of convincing everybody that it could work. And, and all these things are 100% teamwork. You know, if I can get the suppliers to supply, the consumers to consume, the, the workers to work, and the lenders to lend, um, everything will make sense. Mm-hmm. And um, we, it was, you know, skin of our teeth for a while that, Customers, customers all said, "Oh yeah, if you buy it, we'll come right back," mm-hmm. and they didn't. And you know, wow. so that that killed us all through the spring. Um, but we got the we got very slowly, painful. We got it back. Uh, turned a what was it like a five million dollar prior year loss into I think like a four million dollar gain. And then um, the next year, just tore the cover off the ball and had a great year. And the year after that was last year. That was great. Um, We'll see what happens here with uh, with all this coronavirus stuff. Um, what was, oh, the third one's a good story. <clears throat> there was a uh, uh, great factory in Ohio, a 113-year-old company that had failed, and the bank decided they hated the owner's guts and just wanted to crush him. The business was going they, – they, they felt they'd been betrayed. Um, what type of company was, was it? Co- uh, manufacturing, steel fabricating. Okay. Um, kind of big, heavy steel fabricating. Um, so when, by the time we looked at it, you know, they were, uh, they were winding the business down quickly. The bank wasn't budging. They wanted, they wanted to basically flatten the guy and make sure he was stuck with an empty building in a rust belt town that, you know, he would never be able to rent again, um, or, or get any value out of. But, um, we, again, we saw nice bones on the business. Um, I couldn't get anybody to pay attention to us, but I finally got the, um, the, the mayor's office and then the mayor helped get the county and state folks. And they all said, yeah, we'll help. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give some money for training and, um, and, and machine repair and, and whatnot. And then we went to the customers and said, uh, we think we can turn this business back on. Will you support us? And the customer said, yeah, we'll support you. Then we went to the vendors and they grudgingly said, yeah, we'll support you, but they've mm-hmm. been stuck for like 10 million bucks. Um, and then we, oh, and then we went to the union, the, um, United Steelworkers who just lost 350 jobs there Yep. and they said they'd support us. And then basically we all went to the bank and, um, through a series of conversations that started off pleasant and ended up, um, about as annoying as we could possibly be. Um, uh, we, we, <laughs> We finally uh, increased the public pressure enough that the chairman of this enormous bank uh, flinched and said, fine, we'll sell you the assets. Hmm. So they sold us the assets, and we re- the business at that point had been closed for two months. Uh, we restarted the business, and um, it's doing fantastic right now. We've got a uh, 12-, 13-month order book. Um, everything's great. The union's happy. The town's thrilled. They've never been happier. Um Everybody, it just, it worked out great. That's what happens when everybody works together with, you know, good fundamentals. These, these things can happen. Yeah. And it sounds like, sounds like, you know, there's, 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 there's lots to digest, but, you know, just, just kind of looking at my notes, it's, there's, there's, there's themes with each of these stories. It's, you know, gathering support and kind of creating a coalition to then go to whoever's, you know, dogging you to either close down or, 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 or liquidate. It's basically going to them and say, look, you know, we've got all these people that believe in us. Um, just give us one more shot. Kind of like a, uh, kind of like a, you know, 
I don't I don't really want to romanticize it, but that's 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 kind of the way that I'm interpreting it. It's basically saying, you know, hey, look, just give us one more shot. You know, we really believe in this. We've got all these backers. Um, but another thing that I'm interested in is, you know, you obviously chose these turnarounds and these companies for a reason, and you alluded to it in the first part where you said, you know, like an architect likes the bones of a structure. What about each of those businesses did you like and that you thought, you know, hey, this could actually be a be a success story? And then, you know, like in in each of these, were there themes that you found or common threads that you like to see just in any business, regardless of whether it's a turnaround or not? Um, yeah, there are. And these, in general, um, companies are only companies that are going under are only about thirty percent screwed up. So, like seventy percent of it usually works, and it's usually the CEO or entrepreneur's Achilles heel. You'll get a uh, an, a brilliant engineer who forgot about booking sales. You'll get a brilliant salesperson who forgot about accounting. Uh, you'll get an accountant who, you know, wasn't very good at sales, you know, or something like that. So it's, it's just their blind spot. Usually every once in a while I get tricked and everything's screwed up from the beginning to end. Um, let's see. So first one was customers. Um, if I could get that one big customer back and so we made uh, aerospace parts and this was a, uh, huge global multinational um, defense and aerospace company. And if we could get them back, um, we'd be okay. And the company would have a reason to live. Sometimes the the customer says, no, we don't care. You're, you're mediocre. You've always been mediocre. The world's full of mediocre companies. We have no interest in saving this business or or doing you any favors. Um, The second one was we had a, uh, I thought, you know, a, a, it's a paper mill. We we had a uh, fantastic grade of paper. We've got uh, like the northernmost forest in North America with really long fiber and um, the largest private uh, land holding in North America as well. So with that resource, I thought, you know, if we can get the machine and everything else working, um, you know, the, the, the market wants this fiber. The global market will always want our fiber. And that was a thought there. The other one, a uh, steel fabricator, we did infrastructure projects and 113-year um, <clears throat> history. And I just thought, you know, if you're in infrastructure and you've been around that long, how the hell can you screw that up? Like, there's <laughs> got to be a business here. And, um, and, and, there, and there was. Yeah, no, that's... that's. Uh, that, I'll tell that's... you real quickly, my, my 2020 um, yeah, that was... we're in the running for $300 million pharmaceutical company with eight factories in seven countries. If you count Puerto Rico as separate, um, with a million and a half dollar loss in one year, we dropped revenues from 300 to I think like 250, but increased uh, profits from negative one and a half to plus 30 million. Um, Wait, hold on. And. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that warrants some some discussion. You went from negative one point five to positive thirty million. Yeah. So how? Yeah. That, how? I'll tell you, that one was a lot of um, you know. Sometimes it's doing the right thing, and sometimes it's just stop doing the wrong thing. Hmm. Um, we stopped just we we stopped doing lots and lots and lots of really dumb stuff, and uh, and then just focused in. And that was. Um, a a growth minded CEO who was doing, you know, 
certainly in his mind and probably even objectively, if you studied it in the classroom, the classroom would say they were doing everything right because it was a growth, growth, growth story that was going to work out fine. And um, then they ran the troubles and um, the growth thing didn't hold up. But we go in and we're just, um, you know, we, we just eliminate risk. We eliminate cost and we just get it down to the nitty gritty and focus in on, you know, a couple things and do them exceptionally and don't get distracted by priority three, four, five, et cetera. Um, and that's really what we did there. You know, our priority was, was cash and customers and, um, and we really didn't focus on anything else. And, you know, it was just upsetting to the, the, it's always upsetting to employees because they bought into the growth vision and, um, right. and everybody's bought into that. And, and to take them to a survival vision is, um, it, it's a hard sell except when they realize that survival's at stake and then it's an easy stuff. And that's how they keep their job. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you can listen, if we want to build back to that, we can from a strong foundation, but we got to have a really strong foundation. We're not doing this Frankenstein kind of adding bits and parts on as we go. Hmm. Um, we're going to go back, we're going to go find our core and uh, become the world's greatest at that core. And, once we're hard to kill, we can go do other things, but let's go become hard to kill first. What types of businesses and this, you know, this this question may be, you know, maybe too, I guess I guess meta, but what what types of businesses and industries do you find it easier to identify a core? Um, in terms of like, you know, you can go in and say, Okay, this is exactly what we do. And do you ever run into companies situations where it's like, you know what, I don't really know what the core business is. Like what are what are what are what are some, you know, examples of that? Like are there are there industries and situations you just won't touch because you can't identify what the core business is? Uh, for me it's certainly a lot harder in retail. Um, you know, and most retailers who get in trouble are not super specialized and kind of blended and like, you know, what do you stand for here? You're a grocery store somewhere between Walmart and Whole Foods, you know, other than being convenient to your neighborhood, what, what, what are you doing to separate yourself? So right. like that, what, I don't know what the hell the core of that business is. That's hard to find. Um, ooh, distributors, kind of the same thing. They can just become, you know, just like everybody else trucking. I've done several trucking companies. Those are hard to, figure out you know so then um but you know but then again trucking you can go down to okay who are your core customers what are your your core lanes basically um where you make money moving your vehicles and where you don't um and trucking companies is basically that you get rid of you know you rank they're called lanes how your trucks run and, mm -hmm. and you rank them all from top to bottom and you just wipe out the bottom 20 lanes and sell off some equipment and consolidate freight and run four loads and lose some customers and raise prices on the ones uh, who are staying. And, um, you know, that yeah, the, 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 the summation of all that stuff uh, turns into a turnaround. Have you ever gone into a turnaround, like say you were you were contacted, say you know what, hey Jeff, we need we need you to work your magic over here. Have you have you ever gone into a turnaround and not been able to turn a company around? I mean, I know it's you know it's everybody's favorite thing to talk about their failures, but um, you know have 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 there been instances of that? I'm really glad you asked because um, that gets glossed over, and I absolutely still fail at times uh, informally. It, my success rate probably runs between 80 and 90%. So I'll call it 85. Um, 
And um, yeah, occasionally there's, <clears throat> but I've also come up with a really good program for that, which, because you think about turnaround. So what's the bank want more than anything? They want like control and certainty. And what's the entrepreneur want that, you know, beyond winning, they want control and certainty. And, yep. and what everybody doesn't want is the chaos of insolvency. So um, I worked with these guys who were a uh, recycling company uh, make a quick but i basically said okay it looks like you're not going to get out of this but here's the plan we're going to go sell like crazy if you guys think you can pile on the orders and do it quickly i'll get cover from the bank and y'all can go do that you focus 100 percent on sales i'll go talk to the bank and the bank said okay we'll give you a month to do that um and in this kind of business you could turn on sales quickly that didn't work. So, but we had this cascade. It's called, I, I call it a salvation process or a cascading cascading um, uh, options of failure. Um, I haven't obviously I haven't come up with a catchy title for it. But um, <laughs> you know, it's like okay, if this doesn't work, then we do this, and if that doesn't work, then we do C, and if C doesn't work, then we do D, and if, um, and and it ends up at a peaceful, dignified liquidation where everybody's generally okay with it, and they all walk out with their head held high. But if anything works along the way, then um, then, you know, you're off to salvation. You know, if you don't sell your way out of it, then you go find a strategic buyer, supporter, joint venture, investor. And if that doesn't work, then you just try to go sell to somebody in the industry. And if that doesn't work, then you go try to sell to anybody. And if that doesn't work, um then you're pretty much in liquidation, but you've got, you know, the entrepreneur's got personal guarantees <clears throat> and there's complications, but we work it out with the bank. You know, like, you know, listen, if it, it's called a peaceful liquidation, if, if we, you know, if the owner plays ball and we get you the highest return possible, you've got to let him off the PG. Uh, otherwise mm -hmm. he's not going to work with you guys. You're going to get a lesser recovery. And at the end, these guys who I just, loved them to death they, that one still really hurts me i failed at it um but they lost their business <clears throat> within a year one guy was making five times more money with no risk and loving life the other guy was probably making two-thirds of his prior pay uh, as an employee but is you know building himself up from there um mm. and the employees lost their jobs and that's you know they're yeah, it's just it's awful when it happens. I I do this because it's the greatest feeling in the universe when it works. Um, mm. Unfortunately, it's equally emotionally charged when you fail. And um, but I also think that I think you know I think there's a lot of consultants in this business, and it, it's just another consulting project. And they don't lose sleep, and it doesn't tear them up emotionally when a hundred people lose their jobs. Well, I I know people who make their living out of closing up businesses that could be saved. Um, because I lost my own business, this is not consulting for me. This is right. uh, like a passion project. And um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm all in. I work nonstop around the clock. I'm entirely obsessed about it. Uh, my partners are as well. And I think that's why we get extraordinary results. It's, it's not, it's not consulting for us. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, I mean, there's, 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 there's no, there's no, um, you know, there's no excuse for, 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 for you not, you know, winning these, these awards back to back to back maybe to back again for four four years in a row um you know without without putting it, in it also go ahead it also proves i'm pretty good at um <laughs> at filling out the forms <laughs> yeah <laughs> having all your extended family fill out the forms 
<laughs> I want to now. I know. I know we're going. So 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 we've kind of reached over an hour, but there's but there's you know a little bit more I want to get into. And if you've if you've still got time to kind of go down some of these things, um, I definitely want to dive into it. If not, we can kind of we can kind of skip some of this. Um, but earlier, yeah, so I got I got I, I got a couple more minutes. We can pop through it though. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So I want to get to your four bucket framework that we kind of emailed before. So you've kind of, you yeah. know, you've, you've, you've kind of siloed these, these, these companies and these industries into four, you know, things that will do well for a long time. You know, this is obviously post COVID-19. So things that will do well for a long time, things that are doing well, but have a murky future, um, things that are, you know, got punched in the face, but it's not fatal. And then what you call the WTF, um, <laughs> which is like, you know, who really knows. So kind of take us, take us through that four bucket framework for analyzing industries. What? Uh, and and I, I came up with this because the first couple of weeks of, you know, the nationwide shutdown and all that, um, I kept thinking, oh, my God, every every company in the world's just completely hosed and they're all going down and this is oblivion. But I have businesses that aren't doing that. And obviously there's some that are doing well, like if you make the mask or you make prepper kits or <clears throat> or whatnot. Um, so to keep myself from thinking, Oh my God, this is, this is the world. I just started putting them in buckets. And I think there's the guys who are just doing great. You know, some people are doing temporarily well, but there's people who like the world has changed in their direction. If you make PPE, you're doing fine forever. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, a, a long foreseeable time. Um, the next is, um, uh, you know, if you make, if you're a bean supplier or rice, you probably just sold a ton of it in the last couple of months, but, it's not like people are consuming more beans and rice now. They're just going to, um, they're going to deplete their inventories the second half of the year. And, uh, you know, and, and it'll be sort of a normal business because you're a staple. Um, our paper mills probably like that. Uh, we do lots of bags and, you know, so orders are up now, but it'll soften. Um, the third is, uh, anybody in the auto industry right now, it probably feels like 2008, 2009 revenues are, going to be off 30 percent um and it's like a really you know you got a couple ribs cracked with that hit mm-hmm. um and that's sort of normal turnaround fare you can muscle your way out of it um oil patch is somewhere between the third and fourth bucket and uh you know the fourth bucket is the cruise ships the nightclubs um who knows when that stuff's coming back and yeah. that is that's like the true nuclear winter scenario uh that we're all thinking about these days, but you know, there's, it's, it's not the whole world. That's just um, one group of businesses and others are um, either wounded or doing okay. And, um, and that's, what's going to build us all back at some point. Hmm. I love it. I love it. And I, 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 I love that framework and I know, I know you've got to, you've got to rock and roll and get out of here. So I'm going to, so I'm kind of going to jump down to the concluding questions and, um, you know, obviously where, where people can go find you. I know you're on Twitter. I know you've got a website, Dorset Partners. You've got a book. Um, I'm going to link all of that into the show notes. And so I'm going to, you know, give people the information on where to find you on Twitter, where to find you on the web and how to buy your book. Um, and I want to, I want to just kind of leave with, with, with one last question before I go into the final one that I ask every guest, but you know, you know, the question is for, for, for public investors, um, that don't necessarily have that insight onto the, you know, the intestines of a company and kind of can go in and see it every day. What are some signs that, that, that equity investors like us can look for, um, within whether it's, you know, 10 Q's, 10 K's, um, filings, like what are, what are some signals that a turnaround is working? Cause I know investing in public turnarounds is often quite hard because you don't really know exactly what's going on on the inside. 
So what are some things that you look for if we look to the public space? Yeah, that's, um, and, and I haven't really done that. So, um, mm-hmm. so I'm not speaking from a lot of experience, you know, uh, the, the signs of failure, uh, probably stand out more, you know, a big new headquarters, um, you know, executive perks, all that means that the culture is getting soft. Um, the turnaround itself, you know, I think you're looking at, uh, at the balance sheet and seeing how they're generating cash. And then how do you get inside to make sure they're spending it on the right things? I don't know if you can as a public investor. Yeah, um, just kind of hope and pray. <laughs> uh, yeah, because there's just not the transparency that, um, you know, what, what is where, where is it really being spent? And, you know, and your P&L is so disconnected from what's happening. Um, it all shows up eventually and it all rematches eventually, but there's mm-hmm. that, that turnaround period that's uncertain. Got it. Um, also wanted to mention something before we wrap up. You know, we had talked a little bit about what, what's going on with banks and bankruptcy lawyers and the whole distressed side of the universe. Um, largely the, the, the banks by direction of the feds are being incredibly lenient. Um, obviously there's all these loans out, all these stimulus programs, but <clears throat> workout bankers I've talked to have basically said that everybody's, everybody's getting a free 90 day pass. They're not going to be doing foreclosures. I've asked, specific bankers about specific companies that I knew were on their, you know, on their watch list. And they had called me and said, we might want to have you go in and, and, you know, do work on this company. Hmm. Are you available? And I say, well, what about them? Like they were doing horribly. Nope. They get a free pass. Everybody gets a free pass. Wow. Um, but they're also saying, you know, but Jeff, that's only Q2, Q3 expect an avalanche. And, um, it's going to be back to normal, but much more so. So, you know, as, as an American citizen, I'm thrilled because we're giving people, um, we're giving people breathing room. We're, we're giving companies the ability to address their issues and get healthy. And, um, and, and in fact, some bank CEOs have said, I will not have this bank in any news article about foreclosing on a business in the next 90 days. So don't even hmm. think about it. Um, but thank God, you know, as a, yeah. as a taxpayer and a citizen, we, we need that. Bankruptcy attorneys are getting buried, uh, working with one right now in Texas who's been working 20-hour days, seven days a week, oh, yeah. uh, mostly oil oil patch stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my bankruptcy attorney friends in the Northeast are generally just taking lots and lots of calls, taking on new clients but not really doing anything because it's such a uh, – we're in such a transitional time. I've used the analogy that we've all seen the flash, but we're still waiting for the shockwave to hit. Hmm. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where we are. And we don't know, you know, I mean, first thing a bankruptcy attorney is going to do is figure out what, what the bank's going to do. And um, the bank doesn't know what they're going to do. And the bank, the bank needs their direction from the federal government. And the federal government doesn't know what they're going to do. So <laughs> it's the blind leading the blind at this point. <laughs> yeah. This eerie, quiet uh, auction values have held up. I'm, scheduled an auction in two weeks and um so i talked to the auctioneer every single week and every single week his auction values have held up and there's been no diminishment um explain that one now most most auctions are online these days so the theory is 
people are home bored <laughs> and they're buying <laughs> compressors and equipment on uh, on auctions. I, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Well, awesome. Yeah, no, I love, I love, I love. I think, I think that's a great way to kind of end it. Just you know, look, people, you know, Americans are are banding together in this in this to try to to try to pull ourselves out. Um, the last question I have for you, Jeff, which is one I ask every every guest is if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, um, who would it be and why? The and I because I've listened to your podcast uh, many times I knew that was coming and um, but I'll tell you my first reaction was uh, definitely Jesus because I've got a lot of questions there but I'm also a pragmatist you know I might want to uh, meet with one of Hitler's parents and kill them. Um, <laughs> And then I'd also like to get a hold of whoever ate that bat several months ago um, <laughs> uh, be, before this whole thing took off. <laughs> but I think the better answer is uh, deep, a deep conversation with Jesus, and um, I'll, I'll bring some water, and he can make some wine. I was about to say, you only need a couple loaves and maybe a fish, and you guys could <laughs> you, guys, you guys could take care of the rest. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for having um, you know you know for 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 taking the time and coming on. And I know people are gonna you know. For, for for those listening, go out, get the book. It's a perfect time to to uh, to 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 learn about turnarounds because we're we're going to see a lot of them coming out of this recession. And Jeff, thanks so much for just dropping some knowledge bombs on us. And I know I learned a lot, so I know our listeners are going to learn a lot as well. Okay, great. And I'd invite your listeners uh, if you you got something interesting, uh, send me an email, Jeff at dorsetpartners.com d-o-r-s-e-t partners.com and we are very 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 active buyers of distressed industrial companies figure 30 million and up in revenues uh, but if somebody wants a, a clean graceful exit that's what we provide awesome jeff thanks so much yeah brandon thank you appreciate